0: Morning. Morning. It's uh, so good to be with you and to be able to do uh, like a one-off piece of teaching. Normally, what we do at Kings, if you have been around a while, you'll know, is we teach through series, we teach through books of the Bible or through themes. But sometimes we say this is a particular topic we think we should address as a sort of one-off thing, uh, something that might be relevant in the in the scriptures to the culture or to the church, and we take a a Sunday as a one-off to do that. And that's what we're doing today. And I think, as you already heard, we're going to be doing that on biblical sexuality, which is massively. It's weighty, it's controversial, it's difficult, it's important, and we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, so if you have a Bible and can turn there, we will put it up on the screen for those who don't. Um, And we're going to be looking at what I guess is the foundation uh, text, really, for understanding biblical sexuality, which is right back in the garden at the very start of the Bible. Genesis 2, and beginning at verse 18, it says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of God. Biblical sexuality is an enormously important topic in the Bible, but it's also a hugely controversial, challenging one for us who live in 21st century London, I think. And it's one that all of us, whether we are Christian or not, and whether we are male or female, and whether we are gay or straight, or we would say neither, or whether we are married, or single, or divorced, or bereaved. We all need to think it through carefully. And uh, we all need to think it through because it's an area where the Bible speaks, and the culture speaks, and they say different things. And actually, we often need to think it through because, at, because for personal reasons, things which affect us directly. And in my case, the reasons for thinking through this topic when I first had to were very personal. So many of you won't know this, but but part of my story is that as a teenager between the ages of 14 and 18, I was attracted to other guys. I was attracted to boys or young men. I was at an all-boys school, and I found that hugely challenging and confusing, actually, because I'd been brought up in a Christian family, and this was a time when the church really would... You'd never have a message on this topic, I don't think, 20 years, 20, 30 years ago. And so I sort of really wrestled with that and didn't quite know what to do with it, found it very hard at a personal level... And it's something I then had to kind of think through as quite a young person trying to find my feet, really going, well, I know that this isn't something that uh, the that God says I should act on, but at the same time, I don't know quite what to do with it. And so for me, this was an issue at, at a very personal level I had to wrestle with. And I know that in this room, there are a number of people for whom that's true. And in the church as a whole, there's a lot of people for whom that's true. And I know of a, a number of you I've spoken to, and it's an issue for you, and it's been an issue for you in the past, or it still is in the present. And that's a reason for some of us just to go, we need to figure out how do we understand this biblically? What are we supposed to do with it? At the same time, there'll be some of you who say, that's not my story, but it is the story of people who I'm very close to, people in my family. Some of you are saying, this is, this is affecting my mum, my dad, my son, my daughter, my brother, sister. This is affecting a close friend or a colleague. So in our case, again, as a couple, one of our closest friends is a young, a kind of young guy, a bit younger than me, who is attracted to Men. And he has been pretty much for the last 10 years. I think he thinks, I will be for life. And he's a, he's a wonderful man of God. He's a Christian. He loves Jesus with all his heart. He just said, I, I know that God's word says that sex is to be used in this context. I'm not in that context. So I'm not going to have sex. I'm going to be a single guy. A lot of people are. That's what I am called to do, clearly. But that's going to... That gives him challenges. That makes, that's hard for him in ways that it isn't hard in the same way for perhaps me or for many of us. And some of you have got people very close to you like that. You said this is an issue for them that they are working through and they know they will be single for the rest of their lives. And that will be a challenge for them. And that can be hard in this culture in a way that it often hasn't been because this culture, the message comes loud and clear all the time. You cannot be fully alive if you're not sexually active. Right? That's the message that most of us drove or walked past as we reached this building this morning. Billboards or adverts or something saying, they never actually said those words, but that was the gist, you are not fully alive and fully human if you're not sexually active. You've got to be having sex, otherwise you're not really a, a real person. And because that message is so strong in this culture, and yet so clearly not what the Bible says, it can present challenges. So my friend is saying, actually, I follow Jesus, who is the most alive man there has ever been, and he is a single man. I follow a single guy. In fact, all the married people follow single guy as well. And we do. And then you go through Paul, John the Baptist, you go through the whole Bible, the whole of church history, you think, wow, a lot of our heroes are single people, and they are incredibly alive, far more than I am, and yet without having sex. So I know it's not true, but it still presents a challenge to me living out what it is to be a Christian in this sort of context. And some of us say, well, it's not my story, and it's not the story of my friends or family, but I just live in a culture and a society where, in the space of a few decades, affirming a Christian view of sexuality has gone from being obvious to being debatable to being outrageous and bigoted. And that hasn't taken very long. Some of us have seen that entire transition in our lifetimes. And some of you will know, I mean, a couple of examples, Jackie Hill Perry, some of you will know, spoken word artist, rapper in America, um, who's got an amazing story because although, and this is not normally what happens. But in her case, she was a, a sexually active lesbian. And then she, through what God did in her life, she ended up saying, actually, I'm not only am I not going to, I'm going to stop sleeping with women. I actually have my desires have changed. And I'm she's actually now married to a guy. I've got kids together. Now, that's not normally what happens in my experience. But it's what's happened to her. She tells her story. She was at Harvard a couple of weeks ago, protest, people screaming at her, yelling at you, big at you, awful, awful things. Uh, and big profile in Newsweek, just trashing her reputation. Like, this is, you want to say, this is, all you're doing is saying, this is what happened to me by the grace of God, and you're pilloried for it. Some of you will know, if you don't know her, you may, may know the name Tim Farron. And again, politics aside, you may or may not vote Liberal Democrat, but this guy in public life, Christian convictions about sexuality wanting to lead a party into an election. The two do not mix. It's really hard. In the end, he resigns and gives a, And his speech, if you haven't read it, is a really... I think, Again, polit- politics aside, is a wonderful statement of what, for some people, what it costs to remain faithfully Christian in a contemporary culture on this issue. And is a remarkable example. And some of you, it's not at the political or sort of celebrity level. Some of you, it's simply true of people you know. And they're coming at you all the time. And some of you are teenagers going, this is... This is the first thing people say when I say I'm a Christian. What about this? It happened to me the, uh, a little while ago. I was talking to um, a couple of teenagers in the welcome area uh, in a, in a in church in Eastbourne and just chatting. And I said to them, so what, you know, what, what's your take on Christianity? I knew they weren't Christians, but what do you make of Christianity? And the first thing they said was, I just don't understand why you think two people who love each other can't get married. And I thought, interesting, you wouldn't have said that 10 years ago and you certainly wouldn't have said it. 20 or 30 years ago, why are you saying now? But I was a bit, little bit cheeky. So I just said, why, why two? Why two people who love each other? Why not three? Why not five? <laughs> and that kind of like took the wind out of their sails a little bit. They're like, are you saying you can five people? And I said, no, 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 I'm just, I'm just, that's really polygamophobic. I don't know what you're saying. Like, and so then they were like, what? And a little bit surprised. But I, because I wanted them to see you have drawn an assumption about sexuality that you don't know where it's even from. You don't know where you got it. And I wonder why you think two. Why not? Some more than that, or whatever. You've got to have some basis, surely, for saying what you're saying. And the passage that we have just read is the Christian basis, in that sense, for Christian sexuality, and for not just Christian, Jewish as well, of course. Um, And it's quoted by both Jesus and Paul when they want to teach on sex. They go to Genesis 2. And verse 24, in some ways, is the key verse on this one. Verse 24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is, one man, one woman, coming together with, in, in a context of marriage, like a sort of leaving and cleaving marriage. They set up home together. They have sex in that context and that context only. There are no other partners and there are no exceptions till death us do part. That's Christian sexuality. And that means that from the beginning, those who follow Israel's God, like you and me, like Jews and Christians have said, right. well, there's basically two paths then for faithful sexuality you have sex within a marriage like this one man and one woman for life if you like or you don't have sex and you observe and you follow Jesus like and you live like Jesus did you live a celibate single life and those are our that's the matrix those are our two options and that means that anything outside of that is sinful it's not popular to say that but it's true in the bible it's actually quite obvious in the bible that those anything outside of that whatever it is it could be downloading things. Or it could be sleeping with people who are of the same sex as you, or sleeping with people outside of a marriage, or sleeping with someone who's married to someone else. All of those things are not what God wants for his people. What he says is, no, you do one of these two things. You do Genesis 2 kind of marriage, or you live a single life, as of course Jesus himself does. And Scripture's actually quite clear on that. The difficulty for us is not that we don't know what it says. Usually, my experience is not normally people going, so can you show me the verse where it says? If that's the issue, that's fine. We'll happily talk about that got lots of material there, but the issue usually for people is why. I don't understand. I find that difficult to understand why God would care, because it sounds to them like saying, only have sex in this context, as if God was saying you should only really wear green. As if it's like a completely arbitrary, random rule, and we don't understand why it's there. That's often the challenge I think people have. And I want to suggest three big reasons, three feel like a, a much bigger backdrop than simply what does this text here say, stand back from the whole sweep of Scripture and say, why is biblical sexuality what it is? What does it mean? Because sex clearly means something more than just itself. It reflects a bigger story, and three in particular that I want to draw out. And the first one is that sexuality is about creation. Sexuality is about creation. Think for a moment about Genesis 1. If you know uh, the story of the Bible at all, you probably know Genesis 1, that God creates the heavens and the earth. And what he does is he creates the heavens and the earth in what you might call complementary pairs. That is to say, he makes, if you like, God's, the, the earth is formless and void. And God speaks and he separates the light from the dark. And then he separates the day from the night as part of the same day. And what you might notice is that if you speak a language other than English, in many of those languages, there is a male-female pairing at work in lots of these terms. So the day is male and the night is female. Now, the languages I know, I've put up a few examples, but you, many of us speak different languages, and we may well find the same is true in our language as well. Day is male, night is female. Then they separates the sky from the earth, or the heavens from the earth. separates the rocks from the sea the sun and the moon. The whole chapter is shaped by complementary pairs until the end, male and female. And in that sense, there's a sort of an embodiment of the way the whole cosmos is structured. It's not just animals or people. It's the whole of creation because in the biblical picture of creation, there is a harmony or a fit between heaven and earth, day and night, sun and moon, male and female. So you don't have one sun around the earth and many moons. You do on Jupiter, you don't hear you have one sun, one moon. You don't have one day and then many nights. You have one day, one night, one of each. If you have earth above and earth below, you don't have life, do you? That's what a cave is, right? Earth above, earth below. You know, no life. If you have heaven above and heaven below, you don't have any life either. That's what Jupiter is, in a manner of speaking, right? Space above, gas below. That doesn't create life either. What you need is the heavens and the earth, and the, the fusion between the two, as one reigns on the other, produces life. In the same way, if you have male and male, you don't get life. Biologically, that's kind of obvious. Every single person in here has genetic material that has been formed by the, both the union of male and female genetic material. That's how we exist. Every single cell in our bodies reflects the same, that code. Whether we're male, female, or actually in a, in a number of cases, might be intersex, but you'd still find that the material has come from a male and a female parent. So you have male and male, you don't get life. If you have female and female, you don't get life either. There is no fit. It's only in the union of male and female, heaven and earth, if you like, that you get life. And that's kind of obvious. It's really obvious to a child as soon as they hear about these things. They know it. It's very obvious to people all around the world in every culture except, if you like, in our kind of culture in the last 10 or 15 years where people have worked very hard to try and say that it's not the case, even though I think deep down they you know that it is. And in my favourite example of this, this was just last summer, but this is an advert that KLM, the Dutch National Airline, produced and they put out on social media. And they put up this picture and the strap line was, it doesn't matter who you click with. And social media, so obviously this is the rainbow thing, it's like you can have sex with whoever you like. And of course social media said with one voice... I don't think that picture shows you what you think it shows you. I think that picture shows you the exact opposite because if I was to sit on your plane and with the top one or the middle one, you would say, no sir, you need to put on your seatbelt and that's right because you know very well that it does matter who you click with and therefore you're actually this is a bit of an own goal at least given the point you're trying to make. Do you see, sometimes you deny very obvious things and it comes back to bite you because it's very clear that there is a complementarity, a fit between male and female in a way that there isn't between male and male and female and female. Now that's, obviously, I don't mean everybody who saw that thinks this proves biblical sexuality's right. I think it shows, though, that when you deny it, you find yourself having to defend stranger and stranger positions. Sexuality reflects creation. But it doesn't do that with a view to saying God now separates the day from the night, the heavens from the earth, the male from the female, and then leaves them there. That's not the, God, that's not the story, is it? The story is that God separates with a view to bringing them back together again in life-giving union and fruitfulness. That's, what the, that's where the story is supposed to go. So God separates the woman from the man, if you like, takes the rib out of the man, makes a woman, with a view to them combining as one flesh and then producing life. And the same is true of creation. So God does this over and over again. And in the, new, in the new heavens and the new earth, you get read from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, what happens is that the heavens and the earth are reunited. Heaven comes down to earth and transforms it, and everything on earth becomes glorious. And a lot of the pairs we've just looked at get transcended altogether. So you don't have sun and a moon in the new creation because the glory is there. You don't need day and night because the glory is there. And actually everything, the glory of the Lord is its lamp. Heaven and earth have become one. And those things which God has joined together, let no person separate. That's the shape of the Christian story. It's the shape of creation. Creation is a marriage writ large. It's a complementary pair separated with a view to union and life-giving fruitfulness. Sexuality is about creation. So Sexuality is also about worship. This is another thing it's worth thinking through from a Christian perspective, that if you read your, particularly your Old Testament, you will find a very strong connection, won't you, between the number of gods you worship and the number of sexual partners you have. Which sounds like a strange comment, but it's very common in the Scriptures. The Ten Commandments, right? Which, if you know anything about the biblical story, you'll probably have heard of them. The Ten Commandments say, You shall have no other gods but me, and you shall have no other spouses but them. Yeah, that's, that's, what the, that's what it does, doesn't it? So you have one God, one spouse, one wife or one husband. Those two things are in the, ten, the two of the ten because there is a connection between the worship of the one God and faithfulness to the one spouse. God presents himself throughout the Old Testament as the husband of Israel. It's odd how often that happens. You read through scripture and you think, why does he keep doing this? Why do the prophets keep talking in this way? And it's because they are acting out, if you like, saying, really, marriage and sexuality is a reflection of God's relationship to his people. And when his people are faithful to God, actually there's something about faithful sexuality in there as well. But often they're not. And often what you have is that God is pictured as the faithful husband and the people of God are pictured as the unfaithful wife. So if you were to look at this theme in the Bible, you'd see, wow, I'm surprised how often words like prostitute or whore or harlot appear in the Old Testament. And sometimes there's whole books written around that theme. If you read the book of Hosea, that's what it is. It's a 14-chapter-long treatment of a metaphor saying this is like a relationship between a man and an unfaithful woman who sleeps around. You do a search in your Bible for the word prostitute, you'll be amazed how often it comes up. Make sure you do it in a Bible search and not a Google search, by the way. I just need to probably clarify where you... But you do it in a Bible search engine, you see how many times that word comes up, you'll be like, wow, this is a significant theme in Scripture. And in the Old Testament, it actually happens that way. It's not just a picture, because it really does happen. And when Israel gets into idolatry, they end up worshipping other gods. You find that with the golden calf. They start having sex, because they worship an idol, have sex with other people. happens at Moab in Numbers. happens when there are idolatrous feasts in Old and New Testament. Happens with the kings. The kings take on many wives and very quickly end up worshipping many gods. The two are connected. Sexuality is about worship. And then Paul picks up on that in Romans chapter 1 and says, really what happens, you see, is you exchange the glory of God for something created and at the same time you exchange the glory of marriage relations with something else. A whole variety of things. Sexuality is meant to encode worship into us and it does. You have one God who is not like me and you have one marriage partner or sexual partner who is not like me. But if you exchange God for lots of gods or for a gods who look just like you, you'll do the same with your sexuality and vice versa. And that really is what's going on when my friends and I are disagreeing about sexual ethics. Underneath it all, what's happening is, for them, and they may say that it's good to do in the particular context of a relationship where you love somebody, but ultimately, for them, sex is a pleasurable physical experience. It doesn't have any transcendent value for them. It's a fun thing to do. It's something that gives you a nice chemical buzz and isn't that great. And then we carry on with the rest of our day. It might as well be going skydiving together. It's something we enjoy. It gives us a nice chemical rush. Oh, that's nice. Now carry on with the day. That's what they think it is. And I'm hearing that going, but that's not what sexuality means to me. That's not what it means to the Christian. Because for the Christian, this is about something much bigger. This is about covenant and union and fidelity. It's about permanence and mystery. I think of the young man who was interviewed by a female journalist, and she said to him, don't you find that sleeping with a lot of different women removes the mystery? And his reply haunted her, and it haunts me. He said, mystery? What are you talking about? Sex has no mystery. And when I heard that, I thought, that's logical if what you think is this is a physical experience that you find enjoyable and means nothing more. But how much have you lost when you throw away all of the transcendent meaning of what this is and does? And if you don't see it, of course you're going to think that what I say about sexuality sounds strange. Because you think, well, what does it matter? You might have, it's like going, you can't have sex with more than one person. It's like saying you can't go skydiving or play football with more than one person. But when you see that it means something, when it embodies worship to the one God and other things like it, you will find yourself going, of course, of course this cannot be cheapened. By being given away in in this sort of very wide angle way to almost anybody. This has got to be something that's preserved, special, and unique as a representation of our worship to the living God. So, sexuality is about creation and it's about worship. But, thirdly, and this is really where the hope comes in, it's about the gospel. Sexuality is about the gospel. It is a parable of permanence, of the permanence of the love of God for his people. It's a silhouette of salvation. It shows you what salvation looks like, even if you've never really noticed it. So I, as a pastor, I've married a lot of couples, Right? They come into a room that looks very like this, and they would, sometimes it is this. In fact, in one case, it was this room, and they walked, and the, the woman walks down the aisle, and the two of them are joined together, and I say over them, you know, by the power vested in me as a minister of the gospel, I pronounce you husband and wife, you may now kiss the bride. And everybody whoops, stands at their feet, and cheers, and everything else. And we love those kind of days, and in that course of that wedding ceremony, one of the phrases that always comes up is, I quote Paul, and he says, This is a profound mystery, this, you two getting married, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's what this is. This isn't just about you two. We love you two. That's why we all came. We're all going to go and have a nice meal. We're all dressed up. Everybody likes a wedding, but this is about something bigger than itself, and you've got to see that, otherwise you won't understand what this is. Right? This is a parable of the gospel, and in order to show you how that works, I've just, there's a three-and-a-half-minute video that I think might help, which I just want us to play now so you can see some of them. These are not all of them, but some of the connections between sexuality and the Christian gospel. Thanks. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Symbols, shadows, parables. Sometimes this is about that. Flowers are about love. Signatures are about promises. Fireworks are about celebrations. Poppies are about war. And marriage is about the Christian gospel. This mystery is profound, says Paul, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the wedding begins with the groom waiting at the front. He has pursued his bride and won her, and now he just has to wait. And when she eventually comes in, the whole room stands and stares at her beauty, her immaculate dress, pure and white and spotless. She gets presented to him, and they declare that they have no other partners They hold hands, they make promises, to have and to hold, for better, for worse, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. They exchange rings, signs of the covenant promises they have just made. They sign their names and make their vows legal. Then, as the ceremony concludes, they walk back out again, united as one. Everything he has is hers, and everything she has is his. Everybody celebrates with a meal. Later, they will express their physical union and share all of their possessions. She even takes on his name. Two have become one. And all this is about that. Jesus has made his people ready. His death for our sins has made us beautiful, pure, white, and spotless. We are given to him and to nobody else. We make promises to each other. Never will I leave you or abandon you, says Jesus, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And we reply to him, I will forsake all other gods as long as we both shall live. There is an exchange of gifts. God gives us his spirit. There is a legal declaration. God says we are righteous in His sight. We walk on, united as one. Everything he has, his love, his power, his goodness, becomes ours. And everything we have, our sin, our shame, our past, becomes his. Everybody celebrates with a meal, bread, and wine. We express our physical unity through baptism in water. We give him access to all our possessions. We even take on his name and his identity. We become Christians. Two have become one this is about that. See, I love that video because it does two things that I think are game changers when it comes to this topic and this interaction between the Bible and the world we live in now. One of the ones it does, one of the things it does is it reminds us, it shows us again why it matters, why sexuality matters so much, and why maintaining a biblical account of it is not just like saying, yeah, well, actually, you're not supposed to wear green. It's like, no, this is embodying something much bigger than itself. This is about that, which means that if I have sex with someone else's marriage partner or someone of the same sex as me, what I'm doing is preaching a false gospel. I'm not just having a physical experience with somebody else. I'm doing something deeper and richer, more transcendent than that, and that's why it matters, Biblical sexuality is about the gospel. That's one of the things that this message does, which I love. It helps me understand why it's important, why we're speaking about it now. But the other thing it does is so much more beautiful and so much more joy-bringing because what it also does is it holds up the very hope that we need if we have failed to live up to that sexual standard. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I suspect that many of us in this room are like me, that we have not lived up to that sexual standard in what we have thought, done, and said. We have got things in our sexual lives that we would willingly take back if we could. We have got things that we might actually not take back, but we know that perhaps we should. And we see the biblical standard, we hear this message, and we think, but I don't live up to that. And you know what? The accuser at this point would like you to believe, that's the devil, he would like you to believe that there is a separation between the faithful sexual people around you and you and a few others who have to go over there because what you've done is awful and disgusting and therefore you're not allowed to join and worship. you certainly can't approach God with the rest of us and what the gospel says, what the marriage picture of the gospel says is that that's not what Jesus does at all but that Jesus is the husband who looks at you and he says she has been unfaithful, she has been dirty, she's been broken and I love her so much that I'm going to die for her anyway and present her pure and spotless to myself so that nobody can put any accusation against her and I'm going to do that whether she has remained pure or not, I don't care what she does I'm going to love her to the end, till death us do part, for better, for worse and because Jesus is like that every single one of us who trust in Christ is going to be wearing white at our wedding when the creation stands and applauds as they see the church walking up the aisle towards Jesus to be united with him forever, and that's the gospel that a marriage preaches, so if you find some of this hard, and I do and if you wrestle with this stuff and think, my life doesn't look like that at all neither did mine Neither does many of ours. And the reason why we love Jesus is because even when our lives do not look like this, we can trust that our heavenly husband has died for us to make us pure, holy, spotless, without shame, free. And that's the very gospel that biblical sexuality preaches. Biblical sexuality tells us something that is the only hope we have if we haven't lived up to biblical sexuality. Isn't that amazing? When Satan tempts me to despair, and he does, and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Biblical sexuality matters. It can be really costly. It can. It is for many of us here. It's especially costly for those of us who are single. It's especially costly for those of us whose marriages are in difficulty or who have, whose marriages have been in such difficulty that they have collapsed. It's especially difficult for those of us who are attracted to people of the same sex as we are. It's costly. It can be unpopular and difficult and costly for many of us who don't have any of those challenges, but nevertheless find that living out something that's this countercultural in this society is hard work. And sometimes you wish you just go, oh, I, I just want to believe what everybody else believes about this. It would be so much easier. It will make you sound backward or bigoted to a lot of people who you want to like you. It does for me. It will mean some of us don't get the promotions we wanted. Some of us don't get the jobs we wanted. Some people won't be able to, be, to stand in public life without this being the only thing we have to ever talk about. Because, and, and I know that's true for, it's true for friends of mine. I know it's true for many of us. It can be difficult to live this out. Even for those of us who are married to someone of the opposite sex, we still find that this is a challenging walk. And it can't be achieved under the law. It can only be achieved as we receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Spirit to help empower us. We can't do it without Him. But it still matters because it reflects creation and worship and the very gospel that gives us hope when we fail, which is that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might cleanse her, sanctify her with the washing of water by the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot, wrinkle, or any blemish. My confidence today, which I have, and yours, which you have, is not based in your moral purity or sexual purity or excellence. It's based in the moral purity and excellence of our husband, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. We thank you so much that no matter what we do, and some here, this is a painful subject. I don't need me to list all the ways in which it is. But Lord, we thank you that no matter what this subject speaks to us or no matter what we are thinking of as we process these things, we have a hope of a, a slain savior who loved us so much in spite of those impurities that he went to the cross as we've just celebrated in the church Canada, rose again from the dead to say, this is gone. Death has been defeated on your behalf and has brought us, reconciled us to himself. And that he will one day be united to a bride who is completely pure and holy and spotless. And I look forward to that day with all my heart, Lord. I thank you for it. I thank you for Jesus securing it for us. And I pray that you would help all of us who live in a tension and difficulty between then and the life to come. That you would help us live out these issues with wisdom and grace and love and godliness. We pray for your help and we thank you for Jesus. Amen.